Well, good morning. I like being down here. Now I can uh, walk amongst you and see who's sleeping while I'm speaking, you know, and I can, no, I'm just kidding. If you can sleep, get some good sleep. Um, I take that as a compliment, that I have a, a calming voice to put you to sleep. <laughs> and then get the, the recording and listen to it at nighttime, and then you'll get some real good sound sleep. But what we're going to do is we're going to open up this uh, second epistle to the Thessalonians, and we're going to look at that this morning and tonight. Um, and then Justin will carry on to chapter 2, and then Dave will do chapter 3, and then we'll take a break for the summer and go back up, uh, go back to open messages, and, and then we'll return. The next book we'll be studying is Galatians, come September, and we'll go through that. So uh, we'll keep making our way through. If you can open up to Acts chapter 17, we're going to start there and, um, and look at the background history. But just as an opener, you know, several years ago, approximately 16 years ago, I got hired by the Los Angeles Police Department. And when I got hired by the Los Angeles Police Department, the very first day on the job is the academy. And some of you know what a police academy is like, some of you may not. but. Uh, it's a paramilitary organization, so the way they do it is they like to make it a high-stress environment because they want to try to create this stress so you can deal with it there. And then when you go to the streets, your stress level's up here, and you can take the yelling, the abuse, and everything else we go through. So day one, when I entered the academy, at O-Dark 30, we're standing there at attention in our and our suits and everything else. And the instructors give us a nice welcoming by just ripping us apart, yelling at us, picking apart everything they can. And I remember day one, it's like, okay, seven months, I can make it. And day one seemed like seven months, but day one was a long day. And everything you go to, you gotta run, you gotta hustle, they're yelling at you and everything else. So. You think, man, I can make it today. I can make it seven months, okay? Day two, you ever seen Groundhog Day or, or, or know about that? It's the same day over and over again. And as you go through, and the reason why I bring this story up is that by about three to four months into it, we are continually being yelled at, continually living in a stressful environment, continually being tested. Um, and your job is on the line, and you, you constantly have to perform, perform, perform. And I remember you start getting that three, four months in there, and you, 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 all of a sudden you lose sight of that seven-month picture. That there's a graduation date in which you will be done with this stressful academy, and you'll move on to the next phase, which is in uh, then your probationary period of where you work with a training officer, and that phase is just as, as stressful, if not more stressful, to perform and go on. And I remember guys in the academy, we're sitting there talking. It's like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. You know, this is just, it's just too stressful. You're waking up early, you're lacking sleep, everything else, and you keep enduring on. And I remember one time just thinking to myself, you know what? I got to make it to the end. I'm not going to let man force me out of this academy. I got to endure. And I made it to the end, and obviously I was, uh, went through probationary uh, time and made it onward. But... The reason why I bring this up is because these Thessalonian believers are going through tremendous persecution and, and tribulations and trials and everything else. 
And sometimes when you're buried in the midst of all this stuff, like I was in the academy, you don't see that coming day in which you'll graduate. And for the case of, of the Thessalonian believers, there's a day of the coming of the Lord, where the Lord Jesus Christ will come and rapture them, or they go on to be with the Lord. And sometimes in our Christian walk and, and what we go through, we lose sight of our Savior, and we lose hope of eternity, and we get buried in our trials and everything else that's heaped upon us. And this is what we're going to look at in chapter 1 of uh, 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to eventually get there, is that they are experiencing such tribulation and such persecution that, that they've lost their hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've lost their hope of eternity. And there's tremendous things that Paul will, will, will still praise him about, but we'll get into that as time goes on, if not tonight. So with that little opener, let's look at Acts chapter 17. Just refresh your memory. If you want to see more of the background message and so forth, you can go back to the First Thessalonians chapter 1 message. But um, just to refresh us a little bit, to see the background in the time of writing here of when the Apostle Paul is going to write to these uh, Thessalonian believers for the second time. Chapter 17 says, Now when they had passed through in Phibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and a not a few of the leading women, Join Paul and Silas. This is the very start of the assembly there in Thessalonica. This is what happens afterwards. Paul's there. You're seeing people come to know the Lord. People are leaving the synagogue. But look at verse 5. And I want you to hold this in your mind and, and transplant this, verse 5, into uh, chapter 1. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out. And here is the great compliment they give the apostle Paul and Silas, is that these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Is that what they would say about our assembly and our effect on this community and our lives? Have we turned this city upside down for Jesus Christ? Well, the Apostle Paul did. Verse 7, Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decree of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they had heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest... Uh, they let them go. So here you see the foundation of this church in Thessalonica. You see the Apostle Paul. It's a very young assembly we talked about. He was there maybe at the least three to four weeks, maybe at the most. Some commentators think three to four months. But the thing is what I want to pull out here is these Jews that were there were very envious and, and did not want this Christianity there. And what ended up taking place is Paul would go on to Berea. They would actually follow him there and chase him out of there. But they were, had such a hatred for Christians, such a hatred for the gospel, for the word of God, that they would make these believers' lives miserable. 
absolutely miserable. And it didn't stop just with dragging Jason into the courts and trying to string him up and bringing in the decrees of Caesar, uh, saying that they're preaching another king. They just did not want the gospel in front of them. You see, the gospel does two things. The gospel, well, it does one main thing, is it exposes your sin and it shows you that you are accountable to God. So the reaction of someone has to do two things. You either reject the gospel, put it away, mock it, and reject Jesus Christ as your Savior, or you embrace it, you believe it. And it's an amazing thing. When you go into today and you look at our country today, you put the Ten Commandments in the courtroom, and what do people do? Certain ones flip out. They can't stand to have these simple rules, laws that God has given them, because what it declares to them and what they are convicted of and what the Holy Spirit has come to do is to convict the world of righteousness, of sin, and of judgment is that they are accountable to God one day. I just went through some uh, training, and it's uh, the LGBTQ training for our department and the civil liability and everything else. They're, 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 they're jamming down our throat about this stuff. And I understand it as a city employee and as a police officer. I have to respect all people and give out and, and, um, and not discriminate anyone based upon these certain uh, characteristics. But what I bring this up is it's interesting. So they brought in some uh, individuals. They brought in uh, two, one lesbian, one uh, gay man, and then a transgender. And this is the reality of the world we, we, we come to right now that, that is coming out. And as Christians, we've got to face it. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to sell this stuff as a very uh, logical, reasonable type of lifestyle. And they feel that if they can convince everyone else around them, then that's a good thing and they're accepted, right? Well, they can convince me all day long. They can talk, they can go forth, but it doesn't matter what the world views them is that they have an accountability towards God that one day they're going to stand before the great white throne of judgment and give an account for their sins the same as anyone else that has rejected Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. But see, what they hate is what they despise is any Christian that will point out that this lifestyle they're living in is sin. And this is what the world hates. They hate when we take a stand for Christ. Because it shows that a person, these Jews that are very religious, going to the synagogue every Sabbath, following the, the, the laws of the Old Testament and so forth, they think they're righteous before God. And here Paul comes along and says, no, you're not righteous, you're unrighteous, you're separated from a holy, righteous God because of your sin, and you are accountable to God. And not only that, is you can't save yourself. You, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing you can do to get right with God. And this man, Jesus, the Son of God, had to die on the cross for your sins, and he was buried, and three days later he rose again victorious from the dead. And he puts this to the Jews. And some Jews and some of the, the Greeks said they believed it and they, they uh, joined Paul and Silas in their ministry. But there's others that saw this gospel and they hated it. They wanted to get rid of it. They wanted to get it away from them because it exposed them for who they are. So now you've got these angry Jews that don't want this gospel in their city. So Paul goes to Berea, and then if we followed on to verse 16, he then from there is chased down to Athens. And we know from the, the previous 
study that when he was in Athens, he went and he sent Silas and Timothy uh, to join him there. And then when he couldn't stand it from Athens, he sent Timothy to know their affair. So Timothy goes to Thessalonica and this, this, this new assembly that's vibrant and that's going on for the Lord. So Timothy brings from there, Paul ends up going back to going to Corinth. And there he brings Silas and Timothy back to Corinth where Timothy would give them the update on how the Thessalonian believers are doing. And from there, we know that he goes and he pens this letter uh, from Corinth, what we believe, uh, 1 Thessalonians, and what we just studied. And what he does is he lays out a, a series of teachings on different things they were a little bit off on, little things they struggled. There was encouragement, there was exhortation in chapter 1 and 2, and so on. And then he corrected them on the, the, the rapture and so forth, and day of the Lord in chapter 5. So what we believe, possibly, is that while Paul's still at Corinth, um, the person that delivered 1 Thessalonians goes to Thessalonica, drops off the letter, and perhaps he brought back word of how the Thessalonians were doing. And when he comes back and visits with Paul, and again, I have no scripture to point to this, but we believe that he wrote 2 Thessalonians while he was still at Corinth, and during this time, he was at Corinth, and in, in Acts chapter 18, it says, in verse 11, it says, And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God. And probably during this time when he was there, he, uh, everything he went through, he ended up penning both 1 Thessalonians in the early part of the year, and 2 Thessalonians later on in that year, when he heard word of what they were going through and everything else. Bill McDonald states this, 2 Thessalonians was written in response to further problems and also the misunderstanding of parts of 1 Thessalonians. A few months or even weeks are all that are needed to pass between the writings of the two letters. Paul, Savanius, and Timothy were still together, and Corinth is the only city where we would read their being together. So that's the last place we see the three of them together, is in Corinth is why we believe they penned the letter there. Hence the date of this writing is early 50s, probably A.D. 50, 51, 52, somewhere in that particular time era. And, um, and they, they, they surmise it because Gallio, in verse 12, dealt with Paul, and he was brought into the judgment seat, and that was about the time that he was the, uh, the proconsul of that area, and when he came into rule and reign, and we don't know how many times he was reelected and stayed there, but during that time, he would have pinned it. So um, he went through quite a stuff there. All right, let's go to 2 Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. Now, what I'd like to look at now is, is the purpose of the writing, the, the outline of it. And as our brother Bill McDonald, uh, his commentary stated, there was a misunderstanding of some of the doctrines that were being taught there. And as the church evolved, you get other Bible teachers that would come in. You got other false teachers coming in. And you got all kinds of, and you got to understand that, that at this particular day and time, the infancy of the church, they don't have the New Testament like we have to just turn to and open up to and say, oh, this is what you got to do. So the, the, the church is still evolving and learning the doctrines and so forth. And you'll have some that will stand up and try to uh, assort their, assert their authority and declare this is what the word of God teaches. And some would go so far of asserting their authority that they would say that it would actually, it came from the apostle Paul himself. 
And we're going to look at that in a little bit here. So chapter one, if we were to break this up, there's only three chapters in this book. This book is a little bit, this letter is a little bit shorter than the, uh, than the other uh, first Thessalonians. But the very first chapter, the thing he's going to give is he's going to encourage and give further instruction to their persecution and tribulation. And he's going to take up this idea of what they are going through. And the persecution and tribulation is a common thing for Christians to experience. And you see, as they're suffering and they're going through these trials and tribulation and everything that's going on, you would have people that would come up and say, you know what, we've entered the day of the Lord. The day when God intervenes and brings judgment upon this world. We have entered in, and in some cases they would say, the rapture has already taken place. Sorry, brother, we missed it. You missed the rapture. Now we have to endure this great tribulational period, and we're going to have to suffer. Now you think of in, in, in 1 Thessalonians, how they had that hope in Jesus Christ that all of a sudden they're buried with all their trials, with all their tribulation, everything's going on, and they've lost that hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've, their eyes have fallen off of him and that hope of eternity. And he's going to take this up in, in chapter 1, and he's going to discuss not only the, the persecution and tribulation, but how God knows their suffering. God knows what they're going through. And God is a righteous God, and he will judge them for their sins. They are not going to escape the wrath of God. They are not going to escape any of this. And I love the fact that when you read the seven churches in Asia, and what the Lord Jesus Christ says is, he, he says, I know and he'll tell you, I know your works, I know your trials, I know your tribulation. And this is just, I, I, not just I know about, he intimately knows what you are experiencing going through. He so associates our, his, himself with us is that when on the road to Damascus, when the apostle Paul was confronted by Lord Jesus Christ, he says, why are you persecuting me? I was like, I'm not persecuting you, Lord. I'm persecuting the church and everything else. But when you persecute a Christian, you're persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ. When you mock a Christian, you're mocking him. It's the same thing because we are his representative. And when you attack us, you're attacking him. And see, the Lord has declared, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. The Lord will vindicate us. The Lord will seek the, 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 the vengeance in the sense of, of punishment that is just for the unbeliever that persecutes the Christian, that sins against God, that's not our place. We are just to endure it and to take it. But God knows everything we are going through, and the Lord is glorified in all that we experience. And we'll look at that a little later today and, and more so tonight. So as their, their, their misunderstanding of the, the rapture and the day of the Lord, chapter 2, he's going to pick this up. And he's going to give very specific instructions as to when the day of the Lord is going to occur, and the mere fact that the day of the Lord, day of the Lord has not come. Because the next event to take place is the rapture, and the church is going to be snatched out, as he taught in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So you have the rapture that takes place. After that, I'm not going to get into Justin's uh, lesson, but you have the man of sin, the man of lawlessness is revealed, and which is, is the Antichrist, and he will rise up and so forth. And um, there's a great study upon that and all that would, that goes on. It talks about in the book of Daniel how he's going to confirm a covenant and, and, and with the nations and, and, and Israel's going to lay down their arms and so forth and everyone's going to look towards them. 
And you see this talk going on right now in the Middle East. There's so much stuff that is going towards the day of the Lord. It's absolutely unbelievable. And, this, and it's so specific as to uh, uh, what is taking place that it matches up with Scripture. You can't deny the, the, the Scriptures when they're so accurate. And it's funny. So you have the woman riding on the beast in Revelation and so forth. And you have these descriptions of the end times and so forth. And you'll have where they'll actually come out and they have a coin, the, the Euro coin that has a lady riding on the beast. And the Wall Street Journal actually mocks it and says, oh, wow, are they making this coin after the Bible? Is it a coincidence? And I can show you the coin. I got it recorded on my uh, iPad here. But it, it's an amazing thing when you see all this stuff come into play and unbelievers see it. And they're not even filled with the Spirit of God. They don't even understand the Scriptures. And you see it more and more that, the, I tell you, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back soon. We are headed towards a one-world government, a one-world order, and it's going to be just a matter of time that the Antichrist will step in with absolute ease, and people are going to embrace him. You know, identity theft, is, I can't get sidetracked, but identity theft is out of control. It's out of control right now. People are, we take probably five to ten reports a day at just North Hollywood, of people stealing your identity, using your, either your credit card numbers, your social security number, your, your, your identity, everything. I got a solution to the problem. And I think it's the same solution the Antichrist is going to have if this matches up. You know, if everybody just got a little number on their, or something on their, their, their hand or on their forehead, then we could properly identify you, right? So when you walk into the grocery store and you just put your hand underneath there, you, you know it's you. It, it, it makes sense. It's logical. We have the technology. We put chips in our dogs and know exactly who they belong to, that all they do is wave a little thing over them, and bling, it comes up with all the owner's addresses much easier that when it comes about that the world is just going to accept this answer that, that you cannot buy or sell without the mark of the beast. It's just going to fall into play. And we're just around the corner. The technology's here. Everything's here. It's just amazing how one day uh, they'll look to this solution and embrace them. But that's for chapter two. So Justin has that one. Chapter three is you have some brethren that are, uh, that, are, that are conducting themselves in a, in a disorderly manner. And one of the things that he's going to address there is some are busybodies, some are not working, some are living off the other believers, some uh, are, are um, looking at the coming of the Lord, and, and, and if, okay, if the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come tomorrow, why do I got to work? Why do I got to do anything? Let me just sit down and wait for him to come. And Paul's going to be very specific and talk about these brethren that it's not necessarily a sin they're living in, but they're walking disorderly amongst them. And he's going to talk to them about dealing with them. And he'll be so uh, specific that if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And as well as some commentaries say, we can't, he doesn't give the, 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 the vast um, explanation of all the issues that they're dealing with. But other than that, that there's people amongst them that are disorderly that are, are walking about them. You know, one of the things that uh, I want to hit real quick on, on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, per se, but it, it correlates to, to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And, and the question has to come up is, is why are they, why has their hope faded? Before we get into it, let's go ahead and read the first chapter. So we'll get into chapter 1 here, and then we'll, we'll address that because I keep talking and run out of time. 
Chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is refilled from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of his calling, fulfill all the good pleasures of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, you and him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 because I want to tie this in a little bit. But now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or trouble, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as F from us, as though the day of the Lord had come. And he's going to go on there and give the description, but... Um, but you notice here that, that somehow people were coming, representing Paul, but teaching them that the day of the Lord had come and uh, perhaps even the rapture had occurred. So verse 1 says, and when Paul penned this letter, he had Silas and Timothy along with him. And we believe he was in Corinth when he penned this and that he had received information coming back to him from the person that delivered the first letter to the church of Thessalonica. So he came back and probably... Uh, they probably had tons of questions. They, they would read the letter in the, the local meeting, and then I can't imagine they would be like, ooh, I got a question. I got this question. And the poor guy that delivered the letter, I'm sure, uh, was a godly man, but he's like, hey, I'll bring this back to the Apostle Paul, and uh, to Paul, and I'll ask him. So he's going to take not only that information, but he's also, while he's there, he's going to see how they conduct themselves, and he's going to see how their, 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 their attitude and their lifestyle is and bring back word to Paul how this church is doing. So Paul pens the letter, and as I mentioned, Silas and Timothy are there. And he pens this letter to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a gathering. This is assembly. This is a called out ones that gather for a specific purpose, and they gather to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to look at this one little word, the word in. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father, and they're in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we had time, we'd turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. You see all the spiritual blessings we have and all the privileges that we have in Christ Jesus. You see, when we accept the Lord Jesus Christ, we are placed in Christ. Now, if you think of this in a very simplistic term, if I was to jump into my pool, I would be in my pool. That means the waters all around my pool surround me. And obviously, if I went under the water, I'd drown. But 
In the same token, if we could take this, is that God has placed us in Christ. And it says here, in God the Father, that that hedge of protection, that buffer is around us in which we are in him. And when people see us in him, which should shine forth as God, that should shine forth as God to the outside. And we should shine as a light. That they should see this assembly as we are in Christ to shine forth as a testimony and a light as we are conformed to the image of Christ. Being in God, our Father, and Lord Jesus Christ is tremendous security. Tremendous blessings. You have all the blessings of the heavenly places. You have eternal security. And John, he would describe it, that, that we are in his hand. And nobody can snatch you out of his Father's hand. We are completely secure in God, our Father, and Lord Jesus Christ. And this assembly in which we are in belongs to him. A lot of churches that might bear the name on the outside, that we gather under the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are in God, our Father, and Lord Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, some of these churches might proclaim it, but do they live it? Do they exemplify it in this meeting? So when we gather together here, what we should be is we should be emulating God in all areas of his, his character and ministering to one another and, and flourishing and, and communing with the living God. And experiencing all the blessings of God. That when we are in God our Father, we experience the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. All this is taking place and we gather in here in energy that we recharge our batteries from being out inside the world. And as you get beat up and pushed around and persecuted and tribulations and life goes on. When we return to this assembly, we should be re-energized. We should be exhorting one another and praying for one another. As our brother Chris and Steve talked about in the conference, that really the, the New Testament church, or really the church, the assembly, is an ER room for spiritually uh, hurt people. If we were to actually see with our eyes the spiritual issues we have, you would see people walking in with, 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 with broken arms, broken legs, all kinds of issues going on in their life. But we're pretty good at masking that. We're pretty good at coming in and putting on our straight face and saying, you know, the, uh, I'm well in the Lord. Yeah, I'm good in the Lord. How are you doing today? I'm, uh, I'm good, I'm good. And we just, we don't want to be real. Because if I'm real and I open up to you who I really am, you're going to see all my faults, all my failures. You're going to see all my struggles. You're going to see everything. And that's what we have to do as an assembly to pray for one another is to understand that we are spiritually weak and we have gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has designed this church to come in him and be strengthened and to grow in the perfect knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has designed this assembly and that's what they should be doing in Thessalonica. And we're going to see where they are doing this in that aspect of when they come together, they're exemplifying love to one another. Their faith is strong. But one of the things that they faltered in is, I believe, is they, they've lost their hope. Verse 2 says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Again, grace always comes first and then peace follows after this. And what grace is, is grace is the unmerited love and favor of God. Everything we have is because of the grace of God. It's because of his goodness that, that sends forth all the blessings and everything we have. It's never, it never transitions from unmerited 
to all of a sudden a works relationship. It's always the grace of God that abounds and abounds that, that, that Paul would say, I am what I am by the grace of God. God is always good to us, and his goodness flows through his grace because he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve. Everything we have in the Christian faith, everything is because of the grace of God and his goodness to us. At no point do anything we do exemplifies myself. And it's an amazing thing that God in his grace saves us. We, we, were, we were in our sins. We were going to lost um, eternity. He saves us. He brings us back to his love. It's not that we love God first, that he loved us first. And he sent his son that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love was so great for us that everything we have been given and changed in our lives because of the grace of God. So then God turns around and he says, okay, you guys are good servants. I'm going to reward you. Are we, do we deserve rewards? I mean, we should be serving out of the gratitude of our heart because of what he's done for us on the cross of Calvary. Yet God in his grace turns around and says, here, let me crown you with this. Let me crown you. Hey, listen up. You guys are going to co-reign with Christ. Are we deserving of any of this? And I love in the book of Revelation that we take those crowns that are on our head that he has placed and we throw them at the feet of Jesus because it's all because of the accomplished work on the cross of Calvary for our sins, that we are even there. I, I've mentioned this before. I tell you what, I, I would just love to be saved from my sins and just let me be a, a maintenance worker in heaven. Just tell me where to clean the toilets. Tell me where to sweep up afterwards. I, I, I would be happy with that. Just, just, just in the very corner, like a fly on the wall, and if someone spills a drink, I'll come clean it up and I'll go back to my corner. Is, is that not, I mean, a servant? Just make me a servant. Make me a slave. But God doesn't do that. His grace is so rich towards us that he brings us in as children of God. He gives us an inheritance as a son of God. And he just blesses us beyond measure because of his goodness. And it all points back to the grace of God. And when we understand the grace of God, what this does is this brings peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, that we have peace, that we cease from our works. Every single one of us here that has accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you have peace and you have ceased and you're striving to make it right with God because Jesus paid it all. There's nothing I can do. And we have that rest and the peace of God that we are forever going to be in his presence, that we possess eternal life right now. At this very moment, you possess eternal life if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior Never to lose it. Never for it to go away. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He's promised to, to come again and get us, and he will. And this is the peace that we have, and it comes through the grace of God in this position in which we are in. And look at verses 3 and 4. For we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Notice verse 3 here. He's giving thanks to God for them. And he's giving thanks to them because their faith has grown exceedingly and their love for each other has abounded towards each other. Turn back over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1.
1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we're going to compare this because the absence of, of one thing, I think, can speak volumes. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but maybe not. But based upon the content of 2 Thessalonians, I think they have lost that hope. But look at verse 2. Again, he's going to say, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Notice what he's left out over here in, in chapter 3 is, is that patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of his coming. These guys were experiencing tremendous persecution. And persecution has to do with someone pursuing you, someone coming after you because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, because you're a Christian and you represent the gospel and you represent God. So what these individuals do is they actually pursue someone and cause havoc on their life. They're persecuting them. They won't leave them alone. They keep coming after them. And what I read in, 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 in Acts there is that they actually dragged Jason and the other ones out of their house. There's physical harm that they would cause on these individuals. Now we can only begin to surmise what they're going through in this persecution from everything from being dragged into court to being arrested to being beaten for their faith um, to even probably losing jobs. Perhaps even in the marketplace you go to buy bread or whatever it is, and they turn around and go, oh, you're a Christian, I'm not selling to you. Ousting them, to total excommunication from the community. I don't know the extent of it, but they were going through such an extreme, difficult time of persecution. And it also says tribulation, which is a broader word. And this is all the affairs and the trials of life that come your way. But it was of such a degree that Paul's mentioned it to them and that they are suffering that they really came to the conclusion that, hey, we must be in the, the, the day of the Lord. We must be in the tribulation time. If they knew anything about it, they were just ready for them to be dragged off and be beheaded for the sake of Christ. And Paul had talked to him about this, but through all of this, it's tremendous that they kept their faith and they grew exceedingly in their trust and dependence upon God. See, they still took God at his word. They still had faith in God. It wasn't that they had a departure and turned back to idols. It wasn't that they turned back to the world. It wasn't that they had uh, forsaken the things of the Lord altogether. They believed in the Lord. They, their faith was still in God. And it was growing exceedingly in their, their trust and, and their, their characteristic that as they go through the tribulation and trial, they're growing. They're being conformed to the image of Christ. They're enduring such hardship. And look at their love. It says, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. So in verse 3, that love they have for each other, that unconditional love that when they gather together as a, as a family, as a local body, that they are still encouraging one another, exhorting one another, and they're still pressing on. Don't give up. Keep going on. I, I know it's tough, but hang in there. And their love and their service and everything else was still going on. But the one thing that speaks volumes, as Paul leaves out here, is their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we, we could be, our faith can stay strong in the Lord. Our, our love for one another can continue to grow. But we can lose that sight of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can lose the sight of eternity. 
and that what we are doing right now, it, it, it pales in comparison to what we are in eternity. You see, this is a short little time. This is, uh, this is a blink of an eye, your life, and it's over. You know, God doesn't guarantee any of us any amount of time to live and serve him. It, it, it's, some of us are fortunate, are in their, their older age. Some of us, there's people that, and I, if my job, I see it all the time, people that die at a young age. People that either they commit suicide and they have no hope, to car accidents, to, to whatever it might be, cancer. It, there's a million things that kills people. I, I, I've seen hundreds of, not hundreds, but almost probably about 100 dead bodies in death investigations from the old to the young, everything. And this is an effect of sin. But what I'm getting at is you can be buried with so many things in life that you lose sight of the moment that you go on to be with the Lord and how it's so much greater. And that, you know, why do we serve ourselves so much in this time here? Why do we want to make this life so comfortable when it's, you're just a, 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 a foreigner in a strange land? We're just visiting. We're just ambassadors for Christ. This is not our home. Our home is in heaven. Our home is with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have that unique privilege and responsibility. But it's a privilege to suffer for Jesus Christ. To live for him. To endure things for him. And this is what Paul's going to get through to him. Is that, look, as he goes on, and we'll look at it more tonight. But, uh, um, but verse 5 says, Which is the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Their persecution, their tribulation, their suffering is showing forth the righteous judgment of God. In closing, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what, you know, some people deal with cancer. Some people deal with all elements of life. And whatever life brings our way, and whatever persecution, whatever tribulation, whatever trials you're experiencing... And I know for me, and the reason why I brought up that story in the academy is when you get buried with everything else, I lost sight of that seven-month graduation. And I start looking day to day. And I start looking at myself. And I start looking at all this other stuff. And in the same token, and we'll close with Hebrews chapter 12, if you can turn over there real quick. Hebrews chapter 12. And verse 1 says this, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here's our example. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed, striving against sin. That last part of verse 3, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls, is that it can happen to each one of us. Our eyes get off of Christ. Our eyes get off of eternity. Our eyes get off of, of what life is about. And discouragement sets in and weary. And we want to just give up. Get our eyes back on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he says here in Hebrews chapter 
uh, 12, verse 2, our example to look to is we keep our eyes on Jesus. Just look at him. Follow him. Looking for the day that he will return one day and take us home to be with him. Looking for the coming day in which he will return for us. Or if we go home to be with the Lord, looking forward to that day that we are going to see him one day face to face. What a day that's going to be. And at that moment in time, everything you experienced, everything you endured, all the persecution, all the tribulation, it all makes sense and it'll all be worth it when you look at your Savior. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's bow in prayer. Gracious God, Father, we just thank you for these Thessalonian believers, Father, what an example they are, Father, and what they endured. And, and I can say from my own life, Father, I haven't even come close to enduring the persecution and the tribulations they have gone through. Father, we just uh, want to look to you for our strength. Father, whatever it is that life brings our way, we know it's real. But may we keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, may we keep our eyes fixed upon him, seeking him. Father, may we serve you wholeheartedly, that we know that the things we do for you here and now make a difference for eternity. We just thank you so much for that opportunity and that privilege that while we are still on this earth to suffer, to be persecuted, to represent you in this uh, godless world. Father, may we be a testimony of light for your glory and grace and for your salvation to spread abroad to everybody. Bless the rest of this day, and if the Lord wills and the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't come back, then we'll come back tonight and look at the second half of this. In the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen.